The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This morning we'll look at verses 1 uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Let me, uh, before we read the text this morning, sort of uh, give you a road map for the way ahead. Uh, we've, we've sort of jumped into Luke in a little unorthodox manner due to the fact that we were uh, coming upon the Christmas season and wanted to uh, sort of highlight Mary in our Sundays leading up to, to the Christmas uh, holiday celebration. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, sort of rewind in Luke back to verse 5 and pick up right after sort of the introduction that we looked at a few weeks back. And, and we're going to sort of uh, capture uh, these, these pieces of chapter 1 that we uh, had skipped over as we looked at Mary. Uh, and then we're going to do something else that's going to be a little weird um, that maybe we'll regret, I don't know. But uh, we're going to skip also uh, the first part of chapter 2, the... Um, the uh, shepherds and the angels and the, the record of the birth of Christ, and we're going to hold over those for next Christmas. Are you okay with that? We'll still be in Luke next Christmas. Trust me. We'll still be there. We won't be finished with Luke. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. There is no way that we'll be complete. And so I thought it might be good for us to just hold those, uh, those two sections at the beginning of chapter 2 over for next Christmas season to lead up to the, the holiday season. So what we'll do, we'll, we'll start today in verse 5, we'll pick up the rest of chapter 1, and then we're going to leap ahead to verse 22 of chapter 2, and from there we'll start rolling straight forward to the end. Does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with me? It's been a weird year, why not start the next year weird, right? So that's what we're going to do. Uh, So today, back to uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, and here's the word of the Lord uh, for us today. Luke writes, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when the division was on duty, that is, his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient 
to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's the word of the Lord for us today. God, we we come before you with humble hearts, ready to hear what it is that you've desired to bring to us. We bow ourselves before the authority of your word, for your word has final authority in our lives. What it says we must do, what it says we must believe, what it teaches we must accept by faith and embrace with all of our hearts. Lord, as we get back into this study, we're reminded that it was written to a man who struggled with doubts that he might have certainty. And so we pray, Lord, that as we study this book, even this morning, that you would shore up our certainty, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed who you have said you are, who Luke will reveal you to be as we study this book, the Messiah who has come to redeem his people. Open our hearts to hear from you this morning, we pray. Lord Jesus, for your name's sake alone. Amen. Well, as you know from the introduction, we are looking at a gospel, the gospel of Luke. And the gospels largely record the story of the life and the ministry of Jesus. The life, the ministry, the death and resurrection, per se, of Jesus. But the story of Jesus doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins, as you've already seen from the reading this morning, with someone else. It begins with a great man. He's not the greatest man, but he is a great man. It begins with the birth of a man by the name of John, better known as John the Baptist, the Baptist, or, or perhaps better known as John the Baptizer. Uh, we, I don't like using the term John the Baptist because if you don't know better, you would think that he's the first Southern Baptist, and he's not. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with denominational affiliation. It has to do with the activity that he was engaged in during his ministry of baptizing people. He became known as the Baptizer and somehow that's gotten shortened to John the Baptist in our day. But uh, lest we take pride in being good, solid Baptist uh, and tracing that back to John, uh, we would be foolish to do so. He's a baptizer. And this is where the story of Jesus in the New Testament begins. It begins with John, not Jesus. But in order to understand John and his arrival, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We can't just jump into John's life in a vacuum. You see, when we go back to the Old Testament, if you flip just a few pages in your Bible, well, maybe it's quite a few past Mark and Matthew, to the end of the Old Testament, what you find when the curtain drops in the Old Testament is that we have the nation of Israel, the people of God, who are completely apostate. They've abandoned all faithfulness in the Lord time and time and time again. God, throughout this, the Old Testament has been patient with them. He has been gracious to them. But now God's patience has come to an end. And he chooses to act. And he chooses to act toward Israel in judgment. If his people will not listen to him, then God will stop speaking to them. And that is an act of judgment on Israel. It's as though God says, I've spoken and I've spoken and I've spoken. I've revealed my word. I've revealed myself to you through the prophets time and time and time again. And you've consistently and regularly ignored my word. You've consistently been unfaithful to me. You've consistently chased after other gods that you've loved more than me. And so because you've refused to listen, 
I will stop speaking. And so when the curtain drops in the Old Testament, God goes silent to his people Israel. He stops sending prophets. He stops doing miracles. He stops speaking to them. And by the time the curtain rises again in Luke chapter 1, and the events that are recorded at least in Luke chapter 1, 400 years have passed. At least 400 years since God has spoken to his people Israel. Four centuries of silence from the Lord that Israel has endured. That has not been a healthy and good and happy time in the nation of Israel. It's been a time of upheaval. It's been a time of rebellion, both nationally and spiritually. There have been all sorts of things that have happened during this season, and most of it has not been good and healthy and godly and right. But as we see, God has preserved within Israel a faithful remnant through it all. And as we get to the the opening of the New Testament after four centuries, we find even that the the faithful remnant has fallen into hopelessness. They've begun to wonder, will God ever speak to Israel again? Has God closed his mouth forever? Has God abandoned us completely? Will we ever hear from him again? Will there ever be another prophet? Will we ever hear another word from the Lord? Will we ever see and experience another miracle from God? Or is it all over? As Luke picks up the narrative of the gospel and he begins for us the story as we see it in the New Testament, he picks up on the first major event spiritually in the life of Israel for over 400 years. The birth of John the Baptist. God's silence is about to end. He now finally, after four centuries has something to say to his people. He has something to say to them. He has one last prophet to send to them in the vein of the Old Testament prophets. One last prophet to to send. One last prophet to speak to his people on his behalf. And so he turns our attention to the home of a very faithful couple of senior citizens somewhere in Israel by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it is in their home and in the context of their life that God speaks for the first time in a very long time. And so Luke begins here because this is where the the story of Jesus begins because we know Jesus ultimately is the one who has come to deliver his people Israel. But in order for him to deliver his people, he has to be delivered himself through Mary the virgin. But in order for him to be delivered through Mary, there's a forerunner who has to come first who has to be delivered through Elizabeth. And so Luke begins the story there. And as we walk through this narrative this morning, you're going to find that it's fascinating. The people and the characters and the events and the circumstances are remarkable and they're fascinating. And I trust that they'll capture your attention as they have mine. But I want you to remember as we walk our way through this this morning that primarily this is a story uh, that tells us something about God, about who he is And I want that to frame how we walk our way through the text this morning. It tells us some remarkable things about who our God is. And I think those things are tremendously applicable to our own lives. I think that'll be self-evident. We'll highlight it at points, but the others, I think, will be quite obvious. 
The first thing we're going to see about God here in the first part of this text is that he is a God who works. He's a God who works even when we can't perceive his actions. Verses 5 through 7, Luke begins by giving us a time marker. I told you in the introduction that Luke is an astute historian, right? He's an historian who cares very deeply that he makes sure, as he records the events of the life and ministry and death of Jesus, that people understand that this is not fiction, that these are not fables, that these are not myths that he's recording, that these are real events that happened in real time in actual history. And so Luke records for us even here a time marker so that we understand when these events took place. He says they took place in the days of Herod. The days of Herod. This is Herod the Great. He's the first of the Herods that were mentioned, that we'll find mentioned in the New Testament. The first Herod to rule over Judea. He is, a few things you need to know about him. There's a lot that could be said about him, but I just want to highlight a few things that you need to know. Uh, in order to, to capture the context. He is not Jewish by blood. He is an Idumean. If you don't know what Idumeans are, then you're in great company. Most people would not know who Idumeans are. They are the descendants of the Edomites of the Old Testament. And if you don't know who the Edomites are in the Old Testament, well, you need to read your Old Testament. But if you don't, I'm going to help you still. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. You may remember Esau and his brother Jacob. The descendants here are the Edomites and Idumean, which is what Herod is. He comes from the line of Esau, not the line of Jacob. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the promise of, of the kingship over Israel, the, the kings came from the royal line of whom? Jacob or Esau? They came through the line of Jacob. Herod was notably not from that line. He was from the line of Esau. And yet he sat on the throne and called himself king of the Jews. He married a Jewish woman, uh, a, a Jewish woman from the royal family of Israel at the time. The, the sort of the, the uh, well, the Jewish royal family, the Hasmonean family. He marries into that really as a cover-up in some ways for his, his lack of legitimacy for his rule. So he marries this Jewish woman and marries into the family. His, his, his parents had converted to Judaism prior to his birth, but religiously Herod was not, was not in any way a faithful Jew. His Judaism was nothing but, but show. It was purely outward. It was not real. It wasn't genuine in any sense. It was all a farce. It was all really fakery. He loved the title King of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish by blood. He wasn't Jewish by faith. He wasn't from the line of Judah. And even more notably than all of that, he wasn't godly in character in any way, shape, or form. He's called Herod the Great, but that phrase, the Great, doesn't have any reflection on his character. His character was indeed not great. He was a vile and vicious man. He was paranoid, he was murderous. He was bloodthirsty. And to say he was paranoid is is really uh, 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 saying it mildly. Any threat or even perceived threat to his throne was met by murderous intentions on his part. He is notorious for the people he executed because he felt like they were threats to his kingdom. Most notably his own uncle, his own wife, many of his children. On one event, over 300 soldiers at one time. 
He's most notable in the New Testament because we'll find a little further over after the birth of Jesus when, he, when the Magi come and visit him and he finds out about this perceived threat, this, this child that's been born. He orders the murder of every, every child in the region under the age of two. Uh, a tragic, awful, horrendous event in Israel's history, the murder of the innocents, it's called. It's a mere footnote in the bloodiness of Herod's life and rule and reign. Alfred Edersheim, uh, one of the noted historians of the time, says this about, about Herod and the fact that he was hated by the Jews. He says this, they hated the Idumean. They detested his semi-heathen reign. They abhorred his deeds of cruelty. The king had surrounded himself with foreign conciliars and he was protected by foreign mercenaries. And he goes on to say this, and this tells you all you need to know about Herod's character. So long as he lived, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life secure. That pretty much captures Herod for you. By character, he was not great. And it was in the days of Herod that these events take place. These were dark days in Israel's history. These were days of darkness and corruption in the culture. The king was a murderous lunatic. The religious leadership of the nation of Israel was also corrupt and apostate. The, the priests were corrupt, and the whole priesthood had largely become sort of a, a religious mafia that had used the, the temple and the worship of God's people to funnel wealth into their own back pockets. And so it was a bad situation. Days of darkness, bad situation, days of corruption, days of apostasy. And God had not spoken for hundreds of years. And it's in the midst of this darkness that suddenly everything changes. Everything changes. It's in the days of Herod when there's darkness and corruption and hopelessness on the horizon and people are looking around wondering if God has completely abandoned Israel, the people their faith, and their nation, and all of his promises, that in the midst of all of that, everything changes. And everything changes, we're told, in the home of a priest named Zechariah. A man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Priests did a couple of things. They represented God before the people. The way they did that was they taught the Old Testament in various parts of the nation, wherever they lived and served, they taught the Word of God. They led the worship of God in that particular area as well. They also had a part in, in ruling and judging in some ways. But they represented God to the people, and they taught the people the Word of God. But the other thing that a priest did is they represented the people before God. That is, they went in before God, and they offered prayers on behalf of the people. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. They prayed that God would forgive the sins of the people. And Zechariah was one such priest. He had been doing these things for a long time, serving as a priest in Israel. He was one of approximately 18 to 20,000 priests in Israel at the time. The priesthood had been sort of set up and, and divided into 24 divisions. Within each division was somewhere around four to nine houses of priests, and each house had about 150 priests in it. So you can sort of see how that 
was, was sort of uh, divided and, and separated out. But that's a lot of priests. And there was really one temple. And so it just stands to reason that all those, all those 20,000 priests can't be serving in the temple at Jerusalem all at one time. There was no need for that many priests in one temple. And we'll talk about that in just a few moments, why that's important. But this is who Zechariah was. He was a priest. And we're told something else about him, that he was righteous before God. We're going to find that he was a righteous man. He's not a perfect man. He isn't a sinless man, but he's a righteous man. That means simply that he's a man who obeyed the word of the Lord, that he honored God, that he worshiped the Lord sincerely and genuinely, and his life was oriented in such a way that he sought to obey the Lord and do what pleased the Lord. He was a righteous man, and he was righteous before the only one who mattered. He was righteous before God. You can contrast him with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who we'll run into later in the Gospel of Luke who are the ones who are perceived as righteous before men but are ultimately devoid of any true righteousness before God. Their faith was purely external before men. Their hearts were wicked and rebellious before God. Zechariah stands in contrast to such leaders. He was a priest who was faithful to the Lord both externally and internally. He was righteous before God. So we're told he's a priest. We're told he's righteous. And then we're told something remarkable. We're told that he had no children. And we're told that his wife, Elizabeth, was barren. This would have made him somewhat unique. It would have made him somewhat stand out. This righteous priest and his righteous wife, who was herself from the line of Aaron, the great high priest of the Old Testament, were a righteous couple who did what was right before the Lord, who pleased the Lord in the way that they lived, in the way that they honored him, in the way that they worshipped him, in the way that they obeyed him. And yet, they were barren. For their entire marriage, they had lived daily with the reality of infertility. Like every couple in their days, and like most in ours, they longed, they would have longed to have children. They would have prayed to have children. They would have asked God over and over and over again to bless them with children. They would have watched as all of their friends and relatives, right, would get pregnant and would go through nine months of pregnancy and would deliver a bouncing baby girl or a bouncing baby boy. And while celebrating on the outside, it would have been just for them a reminder of what they were missing on the inside. They would have attended the temple many days when children were being dedicated before the Lord. And again, just before them, a reminder of the grief that they bore daily. Elizabeth and, and, and Zechariah, they would have prayed and they would have tried to have children and they would have prayed some more and tried some more. And yet, month after month came, year after year came, and there were no children. They would have wrestled like all couples who struggle with infertility and others who struggle with other kinds of griefs and pain wrestle with the kinds of questions that go like this, God, why is it that you've withheld this blessing from us? God, is this, is this some kind of punishment for something we've done? God, why does it seem to be so easy for everybody else, but so hard 
for us. And the older that they got, the more desperate they became, the more hopeless the situation would have seemed. In their culture, children were really important for a number of reasons. In our culture, they're important, but in their culture, it was even more so. Children were important because you needed children to share in the responsibilities of daily life. If you didn't have children to help you, you were completely on your own to take care of your life and your family and your livelihood. There was nobody else to help. You needed children to take care of you in old age. There weren't retirement homes. There weren't fancy facilities where you could go and have other people take care of you like we have today. You needed children when you were old and when you were feeble and you needed help. You needed children to maintain your lineage, your line, your, your family tree, if you will. And to, to, to not have children was to have your lineage cut off. And that was disgraceful in their culture. A sign of God's disfavor upon their lives. Religiously, children were seen as a, as a blessing from the Lord, and, and barrenness was seen as God's judgment. And so to be barren in their culture, particularly within the religious culture of Israel, would have been to be looked upon with, with suspicion and derision. People would have looked at you like, you must be some kind of a sinner that God would judge you like this. And so we see that God is about to speak, and he's about to do something remarkable. He's going to do something. He's going to work, and he's been at work. But it's in the context of darkness and the culture, and it's in the context of deep grief and pain in the lives of this couple that they've lived with for many, many years. And the point here is simply this. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of barrenness, God has not abandoned his plan. And God has not abandoned his work. God, in fact, has been working all along. And God is about to break into the darkness of the world, and he's about to break into the barrenness of this couple in ways no one could have possibly imagined at that time. Culturally, darkness, corruption, injustice, unrighteousness. In the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth, barrenness, grief, and hopelessness. It would have looked like to everybody that God was had shut down his operation. We often equate darkness in the world with the absence of God's work. And we need to understand that that isn't true. Darkness in the world is no reflection upon the work of the Lord being stopped or started. Listen, if you look around the world right now, and you look around your culture right now, and you think things are, are problematic, you look around and you see elections that are a mess, and you see a political culture that is toxic, you see injustice uh, in the world and in the culture, you see uh, a disease that is killing people and has everyone terrified enough to shut down their lives, you see all of this happening and all the uncertainty and all of the fear that's driving all of that, and you wonder, has God shut things down? Is he not at work? It's dark and it's bad, and, and I'm tempted to fear and hopelessness. You need to be reminded that the darkness around us says nothing about the work of God. God works even when we don't see his hand. God works in the midst of darkness. 
God works in ways that we don't perceive. God works in ways that we do not understand. God works in his own timing, not our own timing, and he works for his own purposes, not our purposes. We serve a God who's always at work. He's at work through the darkness. He's at work in our pain. He's at work all the time. And his work is always geared toward two things, his glory and our good. And that was the case here for Israel, and that was the case here for Zechariah and for Elizabeth. We serve a God who works. But when we pick up in verse 8, we find out that we serve not just a God who works, but we find that we serve a God who hears and a God who remembers. We're told that while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, that he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, all of that may just seem like historical jumbly, you know, gobbledygook to you, but it's a really important statement. It's a really important statement because what you need to understand is that on the day when this takes place, Zechariah has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. As a priest before the Lord, I mentioned earlier, there were almost 20,000, and there was no way that all of them could serve in the temple. And there is certainly uh, no way that all of them could have the highest honor any priest could have, and that is going into the holy place just outside of the Holy of Holies to offer incense there closest to the presence of the Lord. And so the way this worked was this. Twice a year, each division of priests would go to Jerusalem and serve for one week in the temple. And every day, the incense would be burned in that holy place, and one priest would go in and offer the incense in prayers before the Lord. And the way that they did that was on the week when your division was assigned to the temple, every day they would draw or cast lots to get to see which priest got to go in in the morning and which one got to go in in the evening and offer the, the incense before the Lord. And so many priests would go their entire ministry and the lot would never fall on them. They would never have an opportunity to go in to, to offer incense before the Lord like this. It was a tremendous honor. It was the highest honor for any priest and once chosen for this duty, a priest was ineligible for the rest of his life. They only got one chance in a lifetime, if that. So it's important for us to understand Luke is recording for us what God is doing here. God is working, and God is using not just random events, but he's orchestrating all of the moments here. And here it is on this particular day when Zechariah goes with his division to serve at the temple, just like he's done for many years, twice a year, one week a year. It sounds like the reserves, doesn't it? He goes, and he does his two weeks, and the lot falls on him. I mean, this was his Super Bowl. This was his World Series. This was his prime time, his big chance. He would have been elated. He would have been nervous. He would have been celebrating God's favor in choosing him for this honor. And so he goes into the temple and he goes into this inner court where no one else is for the altar of incense. And as he's offering his sacrifice there to the Lord, he gets the funny feeling that he's not alone. 
He should be alone. That's what he was expecting. But what he got was something else because Luke tells us an angel of the Lord appears and he speaks. Suddenly in the midst of his Super Bowl, his one big opportunity, his once-in-a-lifetime chance to offer incense and prayers and the closest proximity to the Lord that he will ever be in his life, an angel out of nowhere appears in the room and he sees him. Physically, he's there. We learn later that this is no ordinary angel, that this is the angel Gabriel, one of two angels named in all of the Bible. Michael is the other. This angel appears three times in the Bible. Here he appears. He appears a little later at the Annunciation to Mary. And if you rewind your, your, your Bible all the way back to Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, you'll find that this same angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel in his day as well and explain to him a vision. And this happens in, 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 in Zechariah's life, and he is stunned, he is terrified, rightly, at the sight of this angel in the presence of the Lord. Angels serve in the presence, the, the literal presence of the Lord, and his glory is somehow reflected in their countenance and in their appearance. And to see an angel is to be immediately reminded of the holiness and the glory of God and the unholiness of oneself. And the common reaction to those who see an angel is abject terror and fear. That was Daniel's reaction to seeing Gabriel. That was Zechariah's reaction to seeing Gabriel. Now just for fun, I did a Google search for pictures of the angel Gabriel. I don't know why I did that, but since I did it, I'm going to show you what I found. Here are some of the pictures that I found uh, of, of, that have been painted throughout time of Gabriel. Now, I want you to look at some of these pictures and ask, do these look terrifying to you? Do they look terrifying? I'm not sure where we got those renditions or where artists picked up those images of angels, but those are not fearsome images. Whatever Gabriel actually looked like, and I have no clue what that was, it was terrifying. It was immediately terrifying. And Zechariah falls on his face before him. Gabriel, though, has a message. He hasn't just come to show himself. He's come to speak. And he's come to speak on behalf of the Lord. And he's got some important things to say. He's got a few simple messages for this, this priest on his one big day. And the first message is the most, is the most eminent message for him. Don't be afraid. <laughs> when you're on your face and you're terrified, that's what you want to hear first. You don't have to be afraid. I haven't come here to execute you. I haven't come here in judgment. I've come bearing good news. No need to be afraid of me. I've come for a good purpose. The second message that he wants to deliver is this, and it's an astonishing statement. He says, he says to this priest, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. What? God has heard your prayer. Now, if you just, just pause on that statement for a minute. God has heard your prayer, Zechariah. Have you ever prayed and wondered if God hears your prayers? Let's just do a quick survey in the room here. Raise your hand if you've ever prayed and you've ever wondered, did God hear that prayer? Raise your hand if you've ever prayed for something quite often and it 
goes undelivered the way you've asked for it, and you wonder, is God hearing my prayers when I offer them? Yeah? Well, you're in good company because Zechariah wondered the same thing. He wondered the same thing. So God sends an angel to end that question once and for all. Zechariah, God heard your prayer. He heard you. You've prayed. God heard. Now here's where, uh, you know, I want to discuss this with Luke when I get to heaven. And that is this. Luke, I want to know, you don't tell us which prayer is he talking about. He just says God's heard your prayer. He doesn't tell him which one. And so we're left to speculate which prayer or what prayers has God heard that he's specifically speaking of here. Was it the many, 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 many prayers for children all throughout his life? Maybe. I suspect that he and Elizabeth had prayed for that many, many times. But as they got older, and the chances of that grew dim, I imagine that that prayer faded into the backdrop of their lives. Was it the prayer that he was praying that particular day in that holy place? Like a, like a good priest, he would have been praying for things that were common to pray for on that day in that context on such an occasion. He would have been praying for things like the forgiveness of the sin of his people. He would have been praying for God to bring the consolation of Israel. He would have been praying for deliverance of his people. He would have been praying for the forgiveness of their sins. He would have been praying that the promised deliverer would come. He would have been praying that God would cause the son of righteousness to rise, you know, with healing in his wings. Was it that prayer? that God had heard? Or was it some other prayer? I can't say for sure, but I suspect Zechariah knew. My conjecture is I think, I think Gabriel meant both. I think he meant both because he was getting ready to let him know that God was answering both. I think he meant those old prayers for children that had uh, sort of emanated up for many, many years long ago. And I suspect for Zechariah, because God didn't grant those prayers, he thought God didn't hear. Or maybe he thought God didn't care. Maybe he thought those prayers bounced off the ceiling and right back in his face. But God had heard. And his name, Zechariah, means God remembers. God remembers. God had heard his prayer, and God had remembered. And now he intended to respond. But he also intended to do the other prayer that he had been praying in that holy place. He had planned to deliver Israel. He had come to do that, and it was time. That was another prayer that he heard and remembered. And he goes on to tell him something else. Elizabeth is going to bear a son. Now, if what he had said already wasn't enough, that had to have been just, that had to have been over the top, right? You heard my prayer? And you've remembered me? But Elizabeth is going to bear a son? That's miraculous news. That is incredible news. That is unbelievable news. Zechariah, you're not going to grow old alone. You're not going to die a fatherless man. God is going to open the womb of your aged wife. And you're going to have a son. He's going to work a miracle in answer to your prayer. Zechariah must have been absolutely dumbfounded, don't you think? You can just imagine this man's mind racing, right? It's racing. What? She's going to do what? Through whom and how? He says one more thing. You and Elizabeth, 
beyond the fact that God is going to do a miracle and give you a son, a blessing even beyond blessings, you're going to avoid the whole name that baby game. Yep. Every couple who's had kids knows this, right? The whole name that baby thing. I'm looking at you who've had children, and I know this doesn't apply to you, right? For you, it was easy, right? You just sat down and you said, I think we should name him Bill. You're like, yeah, I like Bill. Bill it is, right? Is that how it worked for you all? No. You know how that goes. You get the baby book that's that thick of 20,000 names, and you argue about is it this or is it that, or I don't like that one, it doesn't feel this way, and so on and so forth. Well, Elizabeth and and Zechariah don't have to worry about that because God has already named their baby, and his name is going to be John. John. Now, when God gives a name, he gives it for a reason, and we'll see that a little later on in our study of Luke. But it could have been much, much worse, right? I, again, just as a side note, because I did it, I'm going to tell you. I, I, I looked up, um, like the most, I was looking for like the most popular names for babies. And uh, in, in recently, you know, you've seen those lists, right? Well, the most recent one I could find was 2019's, and it wasn't the most popular. It was the, it was the, the, the worst baby names for 2019. There's a list for this. It's on parents.com. I have no idea what that website is about at all. Um, It has something to do with parents, I'm sure. But in case you're wondering, here are the top 10 worst baby names for 2019. And it starts out with number one, which I have to agree, that's a horrible name. I mean, talk about a name no one could ever live up to, right? King Messiah. Besides being a mishmash of two names, it's bad. Um, You name somebody after a, a, a really terrible car, and that's a bad problem also. Um, I, I don't see what's so bad about number eight. I mean, Cletus. I think Cletus is pretty good. You could go with Cletus, couldn't we? Well, uh, number seven is just trying way too hard to be unique, right? And, um, and some of the others just set them up for, for trouble later. But if you want to know the worst girl names, here's the worst girl names. Uh, Vegas is, a, is an interesting one. Uh, uh, Chardonnay. I, I think someone was confused about the question. Uh, they were asked when naming the child that's what were you drinking not what would you like to name her but anyway it got, it got bad because there was another list that had the most unpopular names in 2019 and here's where I got really offended I mean I saw this and it was like wait a minute I am horrified and offended at this my name is one of the most unpopular names in 2019 I thought 2020 was bad. People had no taste in 2019, apparently. If, where's Tracy? Tracy, is, I don't know if Tracy's here this morning, but Tracy, we're in the same boat here. We have unpopular names, but anyway, John is going to be his name. It's a good name. It's a great name. God is a God who works, but he's a God who hears and a God who remembers. That's the message of this portion of the text, isn't it? God is a God who hears and a God who remembers. Just because he doesn't answer our prayer in the way we want him to immediately doesn't mean he isn't listening, and it doesn't mean he doesn't care. God works on his timetable, not in ours. He knows what is best for us, and he knows when is best for us. He's a God who hears. Our prayers matter. And he's a God who remembers. So our faithfulness matters. 
But if that wasn't enough to blow Zechariah away, there's more. Uh, This son of Zechariah is not going to be just a son, and he's not going to be just named John. He's going to be no ordinary child. He is going to be absolutely very, very special. In verses 14 through 17, we're told something about how special he's going to be. And we're told in the midst of this that God is a God who delivers. He's not a God who makes promises and doesn't keep them. He's a God who delivers. Well, where does that come from? We're told here, many, Zechariah, will rejoice at his birth. Zechariah, this child is going to bring you great joy and gladness. But Zechariah, you need to understand right at the outset, this story isn't all about you. It's bigger than you. He's going to bring you joy, and he's going to bring you gladness. But Zechariah, God has a bigger plan at work. One that's going to affect many, many people. You are a part of that plan, and your joy and your gladness, and even your pain and your grief are a part of that plan. But many are going to rejoice at his birth. This is about more than just you, Zechariah. This is about the work of of God and the plan of God and the redeeming of his people that he has been working since the Garden of Eden. Your life, Zechariah, sits within the greater and broader context of God's redemptive plan. And your joy and your gladness are a subset of the work of what God is doing in the world through this child. We don't have time to go through all the details this morning, but just some unique features of John's life we're told in this part of the passage. He's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to have no alcohol. This could be the Nazarite vow of the Old Testament. They argue about that, the theologians do, that is, or maybe it's not. In either case, he's not going to be one who touches alcohol. He's going to have full control of his mind and his thoughts at all times. And we're told that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. This is a very unique statement, very, very unique, filled with the Holy Spirit from his womb. The way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament is very, very different than the way the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of believers today. In the Old Testament, prior to the cross and the crucifixion, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit did not indwell all believers permanently the way he does in the New Testament. In fact, his ministry worked quite differently. He filled people for particular purposes and for particular events, and for particular occasions, and then he would depart. Sometimes, because the event or the particular thing was done, sometimes because of the sin of that person, he would depart. But regardless, it was more of a a filling and departing sort of a ministry of the Holy Spirit, not a permanent indwelling that we see in the new. We'll capture the depths of that later on. But John is going to be wholly unique from all of that. This is going to be a child who's going to be filled from the womb. Before he even breathes his first breath, the Spirit of God will fill him. And he will operate out of the power of the Holy Spirit from his very first breath. But most significantly, he's going to be the promised forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be great. But he's going to be paving the way for one who's greater. If you were to flip your Bible pages back to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we'll kind of wrap this up here. We need to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, and then to chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of Malachi's prophecy in the Old Testament. 
listen along. I didn't put this one on this slide, but you need to hear it. If you have your Bible, you should flip there. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Tell me if this sounds familiar. It is a prophetic passage in the last book of the Old Testament. God is speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. A prophecy about a messenger that the Lord is going to send, who's going to prepare the way for the Lord himself. And then flip over to chapter 4, four verses 5 and 6. God speaking again says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree and utter destruction. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. If you flip beyond verse 6 of Malachi 4, you probably get some blank page in your Bible or an introduction to the New Testament. Because the last thing God had to say before closing the canon of the Old Testament was, one is going to come, and he's going to be a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And part of the ministry of his life is he's going to be like, he's going to work, and he's going to operate in the vein of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. He's going to be like him in a lot of ways, and he's going to do some particular things like turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. For centuries, the Jews had been longing for Messiah to come and to deliver them. They knew this prophecy. They knew before Messiah came, this had to happen. It was the next event on the prophetic calendar of God. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, Zechariah, it's about to happen. And your son John is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's the one. He's the forerunner. He's the messenger who will be like Elijah. He's the one who's going to turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and children toward their fathers. He's the one who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the one who's going to make ready a people for the Lord, make ready a people for their deliverance. Zechariah, after 400 years, God is coming to deliver his people. He's going to bring justice and he's going to bring judgment on the world. He's going to redeem his people. He is a God who has made promises and he is about to deliver on those promises. And your son is going to be instrumental in the deliverance of his people. I can't imagine what Zechariah must have thought. But I do know that this... Our God is a God who delivers. He's not a God who makes promises and doesn't keep them. He's not a God who doesn't follow through on what he says. He's a God who delivers. He's a God who makes good on every promise. Sometimes it may take longer than what we expect, but our time is not like his time, and our ways are not like his ways. He sees the end from the beginning. We see only a little snippet of life. But we serve a God who's a deliverer. He had promised centuries before to deliver his people, and he was just about to do it. And Zechariah's son, John, 
the son of a barren old couple. <laughs> He's a God who delivers. He's going to deliver Israel. He's going to redeem her. And he's going to deliver this couple from their grief and their loss and their pain. What a remarkable God. He can do something phenomenal on the broad sweep of history while at one and the same time doing something very significant for a very specific old couple somewhere in Israel. That's the kind of God that we serve. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. We'll pick up the narrative there next time that we're together with verse 18 and following. But you need to remember this morning, you serve a God who works. He doesn't work in the ways that we often expect. He doesn't work on the time frame that we often expect. But when life is dark and when there's bad things going on around us and pain and difficulty in our lives, there's, ne there's ne not any necessary correlation between any of that and what God is up to. To draw conclusions is to be foolish. There was a song I remember from younger days. It was a group called New Song. I don't even know if they're still alive today. Maybe they are. They're probably old like Zechariah. But in one of the lines in one of their songs, it said, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. I don't know about your life, if it's like mine. There are plenty of seasons and times when life is hard and it's difficult and you can't fully trace God's hand. You can't see what he's doing. And it may seem from the human perspective like he's out to lunch, like he's not paying attention, like he's just stopped working. But the reality is quite often, more often than not, that God is doing far more than we could ever imagine. He's just doing it behind the scenes and he hasn't pulled the curtain back yet. That is exactly the case in this narrative for Zechariah and Elizabeth and for Israel on the whole. He's a God who's at work all the time. And even our grief and our pain and our difficulty serves a purpose and the broader span of what God is at work doing in us and through us and for us. These are not accidents that we experience. And he's a God who hears and a God who remembers. And because he is that kind of God, prayer matters. Prayer matters. God hears your prayer even when you don't think he hears. Even when you pray for many years for the same thing and you don't see any movement, it doesn't mean he isn't listening. It doesn't mean that tomorrow or next week or next month you may find he heard that prayer and he remembered and he answered. Don't give up. Don't quit praying. Don't believe the lie that he isn't listening or that he doesn't care or that he won't come through. You don't know God's plan. Trust his heart. He loves you. He's about to work in your life of bringing good things to you. In the short term, and he's about the work of redeeming your soul and the broad scope. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, for Zechariah and for this woman, Elizabeth. Though imperfect, they were righteous. We can identify because we know we're far from perfect. We seek to be righteous. But we can identify, Lord. All of us can. We know what it's like to offer prayers and to pray and to long for something deeply and yet to find that you withhold. 
All of us know what that's like. We know what it's like to, to pray and to pray and to wonder if you're hearing, to wonder if you're listening, to wonder if you care. And we gauge your concern by whether or not you give us what we ask for. I pray if there's any who are in this room today who find themselves in that very position, I pray that you would just help them to see you're a God who hears and that you're a God who's at work and you're a God who remembers. And even though you don't send an angel to us every time you remember our prayers and you hear them, we can trust that you do just the same because that's the kind of God that you are. God, encourage us today. Make us fervent in our prayers. Remind us that you are listening and you do care and that you are at work in ways we can't perceive on a time frame that we don't understand in ways that we can't anticipate. And so you call us into relationship with you that's a relationship of faith and a relationship of trust. Help us when we can't trace your hand to trust your heart. And like Zechariah, the faithful priest who prayed for many, many years, instead of growing bitter, we continue to serve and continue to obey. Even when life is hard. Help us with these things, we pray by your Holy Spirit. Amen.